You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women, so we want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers to chefs building culinary empires to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. So take a listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Welcome back, Brown Girls. We're glad to have you joining us again. Last episode, we had our first ever Brown Girls Guide Roundtable live from the She the People Presidential Forum. If you missed it, go check it out. Today, I am talking to Madeline Milka. Madeline is one of those unsung heroes in politics, that influencer who you don't really realize is actually influencing you. I got to know Madeline from my time in D.C. when sometimes I was the only Black woman in the room and she was the only Asian woman in the room. Unfortunately, those are the sorts of things that women of color bond over in politics. She is also one of our best contributors for the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics blog. Every time she sends in a submission, I'm just in awe at her knowledge. I'm excited to talk to her today and hope that you will all learn why she is such a force, a strong influencer in politics, and why the AAPI community and all women of color are lucky to have someone like her representing us. So thank you so much for joining us today. I love that you replied just so quickly to the email. I just always feel that I can count on you when it comes to anything with the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, but just promoting women of color and people of color in general. So I have to start off just with a thank you for being you. And so we were together a few weeks ago. We were at a post-election briefing, and I got to sit next to you, and they were presenting some amazing API slides on engagement and outreach. And I was just looking at these slides, and I was like, oh my gosh, wow, that's amazing. The number of people that turned out to vote, all the community engagement. Can you just tell us a little bit more from your perspective, what are you seeing in this day and age around APIs building political power in this country? Absolutely. And I just want to start off by saying thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate you, Ashanti, for even you know highlighting other women of color in terms of making sure that we all have a voice in this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Um, so to your question, a lot of the work has to be really addressed to the organizations that have been out there. Mm-hmm. So you know, my uh, fellow ED, Christine Chen at API Vote, she has been phenomenal in really being out in the community, really um, working with community organizers and people who are on the ground to help them better understand how to do voter registration. And voter registration in itself is such a huge situation with all the different state laws. And then also teaching them how to um, go to our communities and what whether that means you're speaking in language or doing something that's not necessarily the norm in terms of how you do voter registration. 
And so I really um, applaud my fellow organizations that work within the community to, you know, take that extra step to say, here's how we can go to you and help you, you know, better encourage the community at large. Um, and that in itself just, you know, obviously is one, the first step. So then, you know, hopefully, you know, other organizations are going out there talking about the issues that would be important. And then, you know, we have organizations that do advocacy around our communities, whether it's through the constituencies within our group. So JACL, the Japanese um, American Citizens League, OCA. I mean, so all these different API organizations that are specific to our constituency really work towards advocating for things that they think are going to be important, whether it's on a ballot initiative, something that's affecting us on legislation, and really under, you know, giving more of a resource to our community so that they can be well-educated on when they make those electoral decisions. And one of the things that I love is the first thing you emphasize was voting and the voter education. And I feel that when we talk about how voter suppression laws, ID laws impact communities of color, people fail to realize that also impacts like the API community too. So just to see all of the groups that are doing that additional work around it and bringing awareness because they really just like to make it an issue that this only impacts like black communities or the Latino communities. It impacts our API brothers and sisters too. Yeah. I think some of the work that our organizations are trying to do in terms of building solidarity to better understand, you know, when it's time to vote, having the hotlines available Mm -hmm. in language, we try to also emphasize and amplify organizations that provide that service, which is free, you know, and it's it's an opportunity for for you as a voter, if you don't have English as your main language, to be able to communicate with someone to ask a question about how you can go out to vote, um, not necessarily how you should vote, but giving you the tools so that you understand how to exercise your right as a voter. And, you know, for those people who are speaking a very, not as seen as a, you know, mainstream dialect, you know, so those are also something that we try to emphasize too. And again, you know, so much credit needs to go to API Vote and making sure that they let people know in terms of, you know, direct mail pieces, you know, those important dates, as well as, you know, the day itself being there as a hotline for so that people feel comfortable, you know, communicating with someone in language. Something else, too, for me, I grew up in Las Vegas. I worked for Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley, and her community was so diverse. So I actually got to spend a lot of time in the API community. And one of the things that she just emphasized early on is something, as you talked about, is making sure that we had things in different languages because the community is not a monolith. And it's something that I personally feel that a lot of the campaigns today, they're still not taking it as seriously as they can, that you do have to reach out to all the different communities within the community. So what advice would you give to those campaigns? Because we're about to embark on, sorry, we are in a crazy (laughs) election season already. And I know that they're really gonna be speaking to the communities of color. What can these candidates that are running for president do, who are running for mayor do, to really make sure that they're engaging the community and meeting them where they are. 
I mean, as we close the door on 2018 and look towards <laughs> the multiple windows and doors that are open for 2020, I think that first step is always making sure that there's visibility of a candidate or elected official within those communities. I think, you know, you've, you have found that you know, the API community may seem like they're very closed off. Sometimes they're not at, you know, maybe broader, quote unquote, mainstream events. Um, and that just means that that elected official or that, you know, candidate has to do a little extra work to figure out where those issues are important to the API community itself. And that might mean, you know, finding someone who's very specific in in the work. You know, I think a lot of the things that are intersectional with the API community, whether it's LGBTQ rights, you know, women's rights, all of these things are important within, you know, the API constituency. And there's always going to probably be one or two people who feel like they're the only ones in that conversation. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, so I always tell people you have to be a part of the community itself within the API constituency, but also be a voice to represent in some ways when you're talking to intersectional organizations. And so when elected officials or candidates are looking for, you know, how do I get to this community? They have to be open to asking those questions and talking to people who can direct them in the right you know, place. Um, and also finding out the influencers, because it's not as if these people just appeared. You know, mm-hmm. they've been working in the community for a long time. And so I'm sure you can find all those people, whether it's through the national organizations that you know, in CAPA, which is the umbrella organization that really represents 30 plus API advocacy groups, finding the national ED and saying, do you have a chapter in my area? Right. So really simple sort of basic steps that you would want to take with any constituency to better understand who the influencers are in your geographical area. And then finding, you know, who influences them to say, like, this is where I need to go in terms of the messengers and surrogates that are of influence, who would help better educate you. And, you know, granted, that's a lot of work on the community itself, too. But it's also, you know, being able to say, I don't know. Yeah. How Mm -hmm. can I better be an advocate for you? Because, you know, we want someone who will actually walk the walk and not just give us lip service. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to prove that, Yeah, you know, and that takes time. Um, So expecting that someone's going to automatically support you because you're of that ethnic group or any of those Mm -hmm. sort of things is not immediate, you know, so you have to work for it just like anything else. Right. And so candidates and elected officials have to build that relationship with any constituency group and the same applies to the API community. And I love what you said with saying, like, I don't know, because I was having a conversation earlier and I said, it's fine to say, I don't know. That actually makes me respect the fact that you're also open to learning and you're not coming to me saying, oh, well, I have all the answers and I'm going to do this. And that is actually how you help build relationships. And influencers are important. You are an influencer in the (laughs) AAPI community. You have worked with so many candidates and elected officials. And just these past few election cycles, we have seen more AAPI women running for office. For me, I think of Kathy Tran, who is a little bit under fire right now Mm -hmm. for sticking to her values. But it's also the fact that she is like the first Asian American woman in the Virginia House of Delegates. And we're seeing that across the country with so many women being the first. And Mm -hmm. it's a reminder that 
we have such a long way to go. So for you, what do you think is something that can be done to like encourage more API women to run for office? Because we know that you can't be what you don't see. And I know they're seeing all of these amazing women, like I'm seeing them too. They inspire me. So what advice would you give to that woman who's listening to you on the podcast, you know, this big influencer (laughs) woman who has 20 years of experience in politics, what would you tell her if she's thinking about running for office? It's so hard to um, encourage API women in the sense that I think there's a lot of cultural barriers that uh, API women face, you know, being mainly caretakers and a lot of other constituencies face the same situation of feeling like they have to be perfect before they can run and not having, you know, the quite, you know, the perfect qualifications Mm -hmm. and still feeling like they're inadequate. Um, And that's some of the things that we are trying to put at rest is that you can be a subject matter expert. You can be something of value to your community because you already have this knowledge. It's now important for you to recognize that you can step into that role and run for office. Um, One of the things that we did notice in this past election cycle is that, you know, we have three API women in the U.S. Senate, which is a remarkable number considering the fact that there's... It's like it's called the most exclusive club in the world, right? Yes. The US Senate, right? And you have three, which is a very high number. Yes. But yet at the local level, when you look at state legislators, we're looking at only 44 mm-hmm. out of 7,300 state legislative seats, which is an abysmal number. So that in-between process is where we're trying to you know, figure out the pipeline. How do we actually encourage women to run in their local elections and really fill the pipeline so they have the ability to work as a mayor, as a governor, you know, as an executive in their area? Um, I think that's something that we are wanted, that we wanted to address in building the Women's Collective because we wanted women to see we have these really great role models at the top, um, you know, potentially someone who could be president. We also need to make sure that the pipeline is encouraging and building an environment so that people feel that they can take that initial step. And so that's why the Women's Collective was you know, created to really build that. And in all honesty, part of the creation was really the visual that I saw in Beyonce Lemonade. Ooh, let's talk about this. Tell, tell. <laughs> because when you see the visual, you see all the women that she, co- that she you know, had at that like long lunch picnic table outside (laughs) and like they were women of all backgrounds within the, you know, African-American community that just made such a huge visual for me, you know, because I felt like this is a sisterhood that really wanted to support one another. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's the same kind of feeling that I wanted within the women's collective to say that we have a sisterhood to support one another Mm -hmm. and that we understand the challenges, and we hope that we can share best practices in a way that allows people to feel like they have found something that could work for them. Um, And so that was basically really like the, how do we create this for ourselves to sort of build that sort of environment that also was organic, but also something that people would feel comfortable saying like, I don't want to feel alone anymore. Yeah. 
Oh, I love it. Everything relates back to Beyonce. <laughs> like that's just the world we live in. Of course, in. of course. But I love it so much, and I can't wait to promote that <laughs> on the blog. And you're one of our amazing contributors, and I get so excited when you reply back and you say, "Oh, Ashanti, I'm going to write about that," because we do dive into serious topics, and I think there are topics that make us a little bit vulnerable. And I honestly never know who's going to write back because who wants to share that side of them. But in your blog, being the only brown girl in the room, you had this line that really stood out to me. And it says, I'm proud of who I am as an Asian American. And I readily admit that I didn't necessarily lean into my identity until much later in life. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us just how did you really start to embrace your identity? So, I mean, I grew up in a very multicultural uh, household. My father's Caucasian, so my last name is German. Um, so I was with a lot of white folks. My mother's Vietnamese. I was born in Vietnam and was an American citizen when I left the Vietnam after the fall of Vietnam. And so when I got here, it was basically like, okay, you're an Asian kid with like a white dad, a Asian mom. I live in a very multicultural neighborhood. I lived, I grew up in Prince George's County, which is one of the most affluent African-American counties in the United States. And, you know, went to school with kids from all backgrounds, like something that you wouldn't necessarily say, like, I grew up in a white neighborhood or I grew up in a black neighborhood. It was basically everything. And so throughout most of my childhood, probably grew up with very rose colored glasses of not really understanding racism or my identity as an Asian American. Like I would go home and have very Vietnamese traditions and cultures in my home. And then like when I would leave my house and it'd be like, the white side or whatever. <laughs> so then as I started, you know, I went to school in the South. So I went to school at Tulane in New Orleans where, you know, you've got a very like a third is from the East Coast, a third from the South and everywhere else. So my upbringing was just, was varied, you know, and then coming to work in politics where I wasn't, I didn't start in the Asian side of things. I did very, I worked with, you know, moderate Democrats. I fundraised, I worked with, you know, Vice President Gore's team. I worked on the political team. So for me, it wasn't, I wasn't organizing Asian Americans. I was really working with a bunch of different people. So by the time I actually stepped into Asian American politics, I was sort of already a formed person. And so at that point, I wanted to better educate myself with the challenges that the Asian American community had faced, you know, coming to the U.S. in a different way. Because, like, Vietnam was just experiencing its anniversary of the diaspora, and the Smithsonian did a collection, really, of that anniversary. And so they collected all of these Vietnamese American first sort of things, like the first pho restaurant, the first mainstream <laughs> restaurant crustacean in Beverly Hills. Like, so I went to the opening of that and I was like, I didn't experience this. Like people mm. had refugee experiences. People had like, what was it like to be a boat person? What was it like to move your family in a way that wasn't my experience? And so it was an educational experience for me in that my story was very different from people who came from Vietnam. So that, in a sense, brought me a lot more awareness of what it's like to be an Asian American in a different story. And I wanted to be sure that I was um, sharing those experiences with those people who 
may not have gone through the same sort of circumstances. So I think the leaning into that was really just being able to embrace that there are a lot of stories that we should be sharing, not just, you know, the Asian American story, but also of those people who've come as immigrants, those people who've been here for multi-generations, and understanding that it's all about, you know, the fabric of the United States of America. Like, we're not homogenous because of that. And that's what makes us like such a wonderful country because each thread tells a story and each community that comes here is that story. And, you know, being able to, you know, see that within, you know, the variety of Asian American cultures and backgrounds who come here, being able to say like, okay, this is a immigrant community that's been here for 20 years, but yet they're now elected officials and they have people who are now fully ingrained into like the American story. I think that's where I'm most proud of being Asian American and why I lean into it. I love it. And something else you wrote in the blog, and this is something I want the contributors to explore, is you said that your original mentors were not API individuals. You said they were three white women. And that was something else that you wrote. And I was like, I immediately identify with this because my forever boss is Shelly Berkeley. <laughs> I love her. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that there are people who don't look like you who are rooting for you right. and who want to help you. And I feel sometimes things get a little clouded where it's like, oh, you can only learn from a black woman. Really? No, I think there's so much that people have to offer. So can you tell us a little bit about what that mentorship was like and how you were still able to learn and grow from people who did not look like you, but were just so invested in seeing you successful? Yeah, I think there was an also another um, a Twitter question that, that came out recently where someone asked, tell me about the first Asian American teacher you've ever had, you had. And I've never, I never, I don't think I've ever had one. And so like, you know, growing up, like I had African American teachers, I had other teachers from other backgrounds, but just, you know, um, I couldn't answer that question. And I didn't come of age when there was an Asian American studies program. There's so things I think have started to change in that sense to where I'm used to having, you know, other than my mother, my family, having people not of my background be my teachers and mentors and sort of role models. So, you know, when I got to this place in politics and found these people or these people found me, you know, I think I think it's one of those things where I said it's really about investment you know, you're investing in the next generation and that could be someone who doesn't look like you. That could be Mm -hmm. someone who has the talent that you know has the ability to progress in their careers and putting an effort to really foster that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think some of the things that I see in terms of when I I see other women of color, I want to be supportive of those women too, because they're all going through similar experiences and they're all experiencing something that might be specific to their constituency that they face because of their backgrounds. At the same time, it also means that as a coalition and as a way to be supportive, it's to, you know, we can't be in your shoes, but we can hopefully empathize to an extent to where we can be good allies. And I think that's important to recognize when you're seeing women of all different backgrounds 
going through this so that you can hopefully say, you know, I recognize the people who took a chance on me. I want to be able to do the same thing in terms of other women. And that's one of the things that Forever Boss Shelly Berkeley taught me is she said, definitely pay it forward when you get in those positions. And just this is why I'm so excited about this conversation. What you said about even though we're different, we still have the same experiences being women of color in politics. I remember when I started the BGG, someone said to me, why aren't you just doing this for black women? And I said, because I have lots of friends who are different than me, black and brown women. And even though we may not be working at the same place and we look different, believe me, I can drop a topic and we will have the same shared experience because there is that with being a woman of color in politics. And one of the things I want to talk about is you do have women like you, Judy Chu, Grace Mean, Tammy Duckworth, Kamala Harris, Leanna Wynn who are in such powerful positions, but you still have to deal with those awful stereotypes of Asian women and those negative perceptions. And how do you fight back against those every day? I think it's, you know, people also come with preconceived notions, you know, and bias. And I think recognizing immediately what those things could possibly be at least fortifies people to prepare themselves for, you know, what sort of um, situations they might or challenges they might be facing. You know, when I tell candidates or about what people might expect from them in terms of like when they're going into meetings and, you know, trying to convey who they are, I said, it's still going to be about your authentic self. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever it is that is about you that people will recognize is what you should be. Like you can't really create another entity of yourself, you know, mm-hmm. when you're going out to campaign or mm-hmm. going out to be a legislator, because ultimately people are going to see through that, that you're mm-hmm. trying too hard to be something that you're not. Mm-hmm. And so whatever your authentic self is, just embrace that because ultimately people will respect you for the fact that you're either going to be true to who you are or you're just manifesting something else that doesn't really exist for them. Yeah. Right. And it's not really, it's really about who you are so that people can honestly say like, well, this is who you are. She's being mm-hmm. honest. This is what you can expect from her as a legislator or as a candidate. You know, there are going to be people who are not warm and fuzzy. There are going to be yeah. people who choose to not ever convey their emotions when they are in a meeting and you won't be able to read how you're doing. You mm-hmm. have to just wait to the end to see if they have any judgment or statement that suggests anything else. And so I'm always like, just be as true to yourself as possible, because I think that's just the, the best route. And one of the things my colleagues and I were talking about, because we just love your personal style. I remember when we did our panel on Netverse, I was like, oh, I'm going to be on the panel with Madeline. I have to wear my best, best, best dress. Like, really have to bring it. But there's also this notion to to conform to those Mm -hmm. expectations with the way we wear our hair, Mm -hmm. with the way we dress. I know it's something that I've dealt with where your heels are a little bit too high. but But I like heels. That's what I'm comfortable in. Or your hair may be a little bit too long. You should pin it up and those are things that we have to combat but with being who we are authentically right yeah and it's I mean there's that line between you know what's the professional 
like when a young person comes in and I would prefer that they see themselves as a professional and that they have a demeanor and an appearance that would convey that, Mm -hmm. you know, so being able to share with them, here are some common practices when it comes to dress so that you are seen as a professional Mm -hmm. and not seen as someone who would not be considered as such. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel like there's that level because I will honestly say there's women lobbyists who will come to me and say there's folks who need to have a quote unquote fashion lesson, not necessarily (laughs) like, you know, hitting it up in terms of like New York fashion week, but just, you know, skirts too short, Mm -hmm. looks like, you know, whatever the case might be. And so we want to just always make sure that people feel like they're confident and professional Mm -hmm. at the same time, showing a side of themselves that's really about them that makes them feel like they're confident. But it comes to also, those are things that women have to think about if they're running for office, if they're the CEO of a major organization that men don't. Right. And it does just kind of add that extra pressure, not only being a woman, but when you add on to being a woman of color, like in this role, I know plenty of times where it's like, you put on an outfit and I just be like, maybe not for this event and you change. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's, you know, people are going to, judge and people you know we don't have a uniform of a suit that most men have so, so lucky. it does you know it, but that also means we can be more creative it also means mm-hmm. that we have the you know flexibility to to really showcase our personality and and really you know stand out if that's what we choose mm-hmm. you know and I think it's more um, related to choice that allows women to say like, you know I want to wear pantsuits all the time or I mm-hmm. want to wear flats or I want to wear my hair up or down so you know I think the standard that we've kind of, you know, in years past put women in more of a box. I think people have now recognized that, again, back to authentic self, that if you're going to really convey who you are and what you represent and, and your values, that also comes out in how you choose your appearance. And I feel that we saw that with the women, women in Congress and they're all white. Everyone was conveying a different style. And something I love about the new women of Congress is they're just basically saying, this is who I am. You're going to take me as I am. Ayana with her twists. AOC (laughs) with her hoop earrings, like leather jackets, red lips, black nail polish. It's refreshing for me to see that young women are saying, okay, I can wear my power suit, but I can wear it with some hoops and some black nail polish and still be taken seriously because now I look like a congresswoman. Right. I wish I had that when I was younger and coming up in politics. Oh, yeah. I I interned on the Hill when I was in college. And I remember, for some reason, everyone fashion-wise chose white pantyhose to be... (laughs) the thing to wear, right? <laughs> so I was like going out to the store, buying white pantyhose. Like, because, you know, as an intern, I wanted to be sure that yeah. I was You fit in. Conforming. Then. Yeah. And, you know, we couldn't wear pants. And so, you know, those, you know, those were just the days, right? So now hopefully, you know, again, just like more bathrooms in the chambers <laughs> for the women members and things like that, yes. you know, and having a baby, you know, right. having a baby on the floor. Those are sort of the things that are changing because, you know, we have more women in office. Mm-hmm. 
We the people have a lot of power. Small dollar donors gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform in the 2018 election cycle. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure for grassroots supporters. ActBlue's simple but powerful digital fundraising tools fuel campaigns and organizations of all sizes, from local nonprofits to presidential candidates. By making online giving easy and secure for grassroots supporters, ActBlue helps to empower us to have a big impact on the direction of the country. Plus, with ActBlue, candidates know they're using the best tools available. As both a nonprofit and a tech organization, its tools are rigorously A B tested, automatically mobile optimized, and constantly being improved. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. What are some of your hopes for the AAPI community going forward? What would you like to see? I mean, you're doing this Women Collective, which, again, so excited about. Can't wait to see it. What are some of the things that APAX is going to be doing over the next two years that we can help promote and support? So, you know, our goals are really to see an increased um, representation in legislative office as well as staffing. So we have 19 API chiefs of staff, which is a record number for us. And that's where we want to see, you know, the increase also is in the staffing positions Mm -hmm. and staffers who are not staffing API members. Mm -hmm. So for us, looking at Andy Kim, he is a great example of someone who does not represent a majority Asian American district or even one that has a large majority Asian Americans in this district because the idea is leadership comes in all forms. Yes. And the default should not be white male. It should be any sort of community of color. And, um, you know, we want to see more women in that. And being able to have people's perceptions of what a leader looks like is part of the change in narrative um, so that people can automatically see potential in themselves, you know, and that they don't have to feel that they're competing against this old notion Mm -hmm. that it's very commonplace to have a person of color and an API run for office. It shouldn't seem like a weird thing. It should seem much more commonplace. So that's what we're working, really working towards. I love it because you mentioned that staffing part, which is just so important because there is this full political ecosystem. We need the candidates. We need the chiefs of staff, the campaign managers. And we need to see us in all of those roles if we really want to talk about having adequate representation. It can't just be one over the other, but then also not limiting API staff to just have to do the API outreach or the communications because we tend to get pigeonholed in all of those roles, which is so upsetting even in this day and age. But it's nice to see particularly the presidential candidates breaking that mold. And I hope that it has an impact on other candidates when they're formulating their campaign teams and staffing up their offices. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about is we want to see this conversation going on where you have an Asian American Pacific Islander on a commission that has nothing to do with Asian American things, mm-hmm. right? It's basically, you know, not specific to our constituency. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause that to us is showing that there's leadership really amongst all communities about a specific 
subject matter, you know, and that also reflects into when you look at a C-suite and you look at, mm-hmm. you know, the boards of Fortune 500 companies, mm-hmm. like that is part of it is being able to say that we have Asian American Pacific Islanders in every role in, in that capacity in terms of leadership, because, you know, we're not you know, only Asian American in Pacific Islander, we're, you know, we could be experts in housing or education or a myriad of subjects. And so being able to be seen as that type of person allows people to better understand that one, we're not a perpetual foreigner and that we are also, you know, quite knowledgeable on other topics. Yes. Yes. So closing out, what advice do you have for the brown girls who are out there listening to this and say, I want to be like her? (laughs) Um, I would say pick something that you really enjoy. You know, I tell people I worked my first campaign, you know, as a staffer was 1996 you know, you're going to work a bajillion hours for little pay. And that's not why you're there, right? You're really there because you really believe in the candidate, the the, th- the values that um, they represent, and that there is a community for you. You know, you don't feel alone. And, you know, I'm always happy to talk to people who want to be in politics and better understand how this works. I think there's a lot of times... I, I tell people, if you want to, you know, break the rules, know what the rules are, yes. know what the rules, you know, who the players are, know the rules of engagement so that you can better understand how to manipulate them to your advantage. Because uh, sort of, you know, that, what is that, um, Game of Thrones, where she's like, I want to break the wheel. Yeah. You mm-hmm. only break the wheel once you recognize who's got the influence yes. and how do you, you know, start to gain allies to move some of that influence around. Mm-hmm. Right. And part of that is recognizing the people who are in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're not yet in the room, how do you get Either. into the room? Right. And so I think just better understanding how it's all interconnected and being able to, you know, pick something that you really enjoy, because I think that's ultimately what's going to drive you more so than anything else because you know politics is a hard industry it's hard to break in it's hard to stay Mm -hmm. um and so once you have the people who are around you who are willing to advocate for you and champion you that's where you ultimately will find your own tribe and build that for yourself such a powerful statement thank you so much you're welcome I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Madeline. Please make sure that you go to the APACS website and learn more about their initiatives, particularly the Women's Collective, which was launched to focus on building the political power of AAPI women. Next week, I hope you'll join me as I talk to Jess morales Rocchetto with the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Awesome. I'm here to oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Cool.